Hey, Chris. Hey, Stevie. You ready to go? Yeah, let's start the show. friends. Welcome back to the Talent Crush Chat Show. I'm Christopher Royce. And I'm Stevie Jackson. This is episode two of our acclaimed podcast. Episode two! <laughs> acclaimed by, by us and several, <laughs> perhaps dozen other people. Um, <laughs> we are very excited to be back. Um, Stevie, what's been going on with you since episode one? Um, well, I just read something that I'd like to share. Um, cause I, I had a really good time with it. It was not necessarily aimed at me. Um, but Lauren Graham of Gilmore Girls fame sure. had, uh, another book come out recently called in conclusion, don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and it's really good life advice. It grew out of a commencement speech that she made at her old high school, uh, <laughs> that apparently her dad signed her up for without really telling her and, so she'd already been chosen to give it by the time she was informed. Oh, that's not the nicest thing to do, maybe. I think he was proud of her. Um, anyway, so she gave quite a good speech. Mm. And then that um, she was given the opportunity to spin that off into a little book. It's short. You can read it in a sitting. Oh, okay. um, it's illustrated by her. Wow. I didn't know she could draw. Yeah. Um, she can. It's really cute, actually. It's, um, I mean, they're not, they're not in-depth illustrations. Um, it's more on the doodle end of things, but they're really cute. And, um, and it's, it's aimed at graduates, but also I think, you know, and anybody going into a new chapter in their life or anybody, I think anybody just puttering along in their life and worrying about the future. (laughs) Um, because the, the real message of it is in conclusion, don't worry about it. (laughs) Try not to worry too much. It'll be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much always good advice. (laughs) It's good advice. And mostly, you know, don't, don't feel like you need to know where you'll end up and how you'll get there and, and all of that right away. Yeah. Life is a journey and such, but it's, you know, in keeping with her other uh, books and in particular with her um, essay slash memoir, book Mm -hmm. talking as fast as I can that came out a year or two ago. Um, it's, it's very lighthearted. It's good life advice and it's funny. Um, but there's some good stuff in there. So I, I would invite people to check that out. Yeah. What have you been, uh, up to or reading or nerding out about? A variety of things. Um, I don't know if I have anything quite as like interesting or meaningful or existential to go into (laughs) good depth about. It didn't Um, mean to steal your thunder. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I'm just realizing I have clear skies. There's no thunder anywhere. Um, I've been reading and watching some random stuff lately. I've been trying to reread before the new uh, Han Solo movie comes out, Mm. because I'm a superlative Star Wars nerd, uh, rereading the original Brian Daly trilogy of Han Solo stories from... I want to say, I should have looked this up, but I didn't plan to talk about it until about 40 seconds ago. (laughs) For me... 
late 80s, early 90s, I want to say. Um, and they are very dated, just as sci-fi novels. Mm-hmm. And they're very out of step with where the uh, new Disney canon stuff is. So they're they're fun to read as sort of period piece within a period piece kind of project. Yeah, very cool. Because <laughs> the, the Star Wars books of that era are... Um, they're very particular in being sci-fi books first and Star Wars books second. Whereas what you might call the later EU books, this is probably the the deepest drill of nerdery you'll ever get on this podcast. So <laughs> everybody just hang on for a second. But the later stuff, um, Timothy Zahn, Mike Stackpole, those are Star Wars books first and sci-fi books second, which is a, a strange distinction to make. But you can hear all about it on my new podcast. <laughs> no one ever wanted to listen to us. <laughs> um, I've also been rewatching um, Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night series because I'm trying to get back into my write-up, the Aaron Sorkin rewatch project mm-hmm. that I've been working on for more years than I care to mention. But uh, the 20th anniversary of the first episode of Sports Night is this September the 22nd. And so I'm trying to uh, have some stuff written for that uh, a few months from now. So more more forthcoming on that project. Oh, and plan your parties, guys. Plan your sports night anniversary parties. How dare you? <laughs> um, I would like to apologize for all the sirens that some of you may have heard as Chris was talking. Uh, my my apartment is located between a fire station and a hospital, and I do not know what is going on out there, but apparently it required many sirens. Well, I did not hear them. Otherwise, I would have been um, mandated by the laws of comedy that I learned from Todd Glass that uh, t- you need to say, oh, that's my ride. <laughs> There's my ride. <laughs> and to be clear, I have met Todd Glass several times, but he is not my comedy mentor or anything. I just pick these things up from his podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, I, I think my mic probably picked them up because they were pretty loud here. So uh, sorry about that, friends. <laughs> well, um, we have a, an emergency, which is we have some really great content in this episode that we're going to tell you about. Yes, we have a content emergency. <laughs> this is a terrible segue. <laughs> What are we going to talk to people about on this episode, Stevie? Oh, we have some really good stuff. Um, So we're going to have some talent crush segments on Mark Bernardin and on Tina Fey. Mm -hmm. And we also have our very first guest. We have an interview with singer, songwriter, director, actress, author, many other things, (laughs) uh, Terry Brown. Uh, so Terry was kind enough to take some time out of her schedule of what was quite a late hour for her because she's in Pennsylvania and we're on the West Coast and we did it remotely yep. uh, to talk to us about her work and um, also her own talent crush, which, spoiler alert, was uh, Drew Barrymore. Yes, that was a really fun conversation that we had with Terry and uh, we really appreciate and can't say how much and how many times how much we really appreciate uh terry taking the time to chat with us and you guys are going to get to listen to that uh, in just a few minutes Stevie, why don't you tell us about one of your talent crushes? Okay. Uh, so my talent crush this time is Tina Fey. And Ooh, Tina Fey is great. She really is. It's hard for me to express how much I love her work. 
And as I was pre-gaming for this, <laughs> I found that it was actually hard to explain why, and I couldn't figure out why this was so hard. Um, and then eventually it dawned on me that it's hard to explain because it feels like something that should be obvious <laughs> and shouldn't need an explanation. Um, but you know, maybe we have listeners who aren't SNL fans or who are younger and they maybe don't know 30 Rock or, you know, they don't really know who Tina Fey is other than this vague idea of some lady that their aunt thinks is funny. Um, cause <laughs> I realized she's, she's very much my era. Like her first year writing on SNL was my first year of university. So she's someone whose sure. career took off as I was coming of age. And I think that's part of it too. Um, and also we, we share a birthday, so I'm predisposed to just be on her side. <laughs> <laughs> Serendipity. Um, so I came up with like the short answer of why I love her work is that she's brilliant. She's very, very smart and her humor is smart and subversive and she's funny as hell and she's very hardworking and she takes a lot of comedic risks kind of for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and her, her, That's sort of the nature of comedic risk. Well, yeah, but some people would shy away from things and, and she doesn't. And while that might occasionally get her in trouble, um, I think it always comes from a place of, of wanting to be good and wanting to make a point. Um, and I, I do think intention matters. Impact also matters, but you know, intention matters. Um, her, her body of work is huge. So I just picked out a few things because otherwise we will be here all day. <laughs> um, so I, I picked out a few uh, accomplishments. She was the first female head writer on Saturday Night Live. Uh, and the fact that that didn't happen until 1999, I think, is is kind of appalling, <laughs> but also kind of great. Um, she started writing there in 97. And I believe by 99, she was the head writer. Um, she was only the third woman to be awarded the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Uh, the first two were yep. Lily Tomlin and Whoopi Goldberg, both very deserving. And um, Ellen DeGeneres and Carol Burnett have both since won. So the, the prize has been awarded 20 times and five were women. So we're catching up. Uh, she wrote she wrote Mean Girls. She created 30 Rock and The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She's the executive producer of Great News on NBC. Uh, and she wrote Bossy Pants, which is this brilliant memoir slash tips for being in the workplace slash just funny book. And she's working on a Broadway musical adaptation of Mean Girls. So, you know, I, I think Tina might EGOT. Yeah, sounds like she's working on an EGOT. I think she might do it. Considering it was 30 Rock that, I, at least from my perspective, made that expression famous. <laughs> With Tracy always trying to EGOT. And having the necklace. He bought the necklace before he had any awards. <laughs> yep. It was yeah. an aspirational accessory. Right? It's it's like the secret. You have to put out into the universe what you want to come back at you. <laughs> he was just working the universe. Yeah, I'm sure because Tracy Jordan read the secret. <laughs> I feel like he maybe heard of it and did what he thought it said. <laughs> I think he just likes to share secrets. I think that that would be some way for that character to like, what What secret? Tell me the secret. I want to know the secret. <laughs> like, no, Tracy, I, it's a book. Yeah, I did. I did like that character's moxie, though. Like, he just went for stuff. <laughs> I love that you call it moxie. <laughs> oh, that was a secret shout out to John Hodgman. Um, getting back to Tina Fey. She's, uh, she's probably best known for 30 Rock. And that is definitely one of my favorite sitcoms of all time, because I like smart humor and I like things where I don't necessarily always get the joke right away. 
Um, yeah. Because it's so packed with jokes and references and um, you can watch the same episode multiple times and keep finding new things. And, and I really, really like that. Um, and it's also very layered. Like I think it's, it's a show that does a good job generally of making a point without bonking you over the head with it. And I, <laughs> I think a lot of her work does that. And, and the danger of that is that people might not always get the subversion. Like there is that there's sure. the option that people take you at face value or they only get six of your eight layers. Um, because <laughs> it, so much of it is so multi-layered and some people are only going to get some of it and not every joke is going to work. Although hopefully with a writer's room, most of them will, but I think really, <laughs> and, and 30 rock is a good example. Um, but I think generally if you look at her body of work overall, it sends very positive inclusive feminist messages without being preachy, or at least that's what it's trying to do. But I, uh, I want to talk about, um, uh, Mean Girls for a minute also. Sure. Okay. Um, which came out, Mean Girls came out in 2004. Um, it was a, that's a long time ago. It's a long time ago, 14 years. Um, I remember seeing it in the theater and um, it's an adaptation of a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes, which is a nonfiction book about the way that girls relate to each other and how aggression and bullying is different among girls than it is among boys. So first of all, she managed to take what is effectively a parenting and child development textbook and turn <laughs> it into a comedy <laughs> that demonstrated those dynamics and showed how difficult and how problematic teenage girl relations can be. Um, and that just because it isn't physical bullying doesn't mean that it's not a problem, um, that, that girls yeah. can actually be terrible. Um, <laughs> I know cause I have I've, some experience with that. <laughs> I, I was one and I was surrounded by them and yeah, teenage girls can, can be awful, but, um, you know, at the same time she managed to make that point and show girl on girl aggression and <laughs> the whole frenemy thing um yeah in a way that made it palatable and that again it was satirical and it, it made the point without like bonking people over the head with it because and it's still a funny movie like at, at the end of the day she made all of those points and she also made a really funny movie that still gets quoted to this day did you have any familiarity with the book before you saw the movie or since i guess as well um I've not read it all the way through. It was one of those that I kind of skimmed in a bookstore and it was, especially 14 years ago, it was a weird book for me to be reading because I, I was not a teenage girl and I, I also don't have any and I didn't really know any anymore. <laughs> like, it's, you know, I'm going to give away my age, but for, 14 years ago, I was 26. <laughs> so <laughs> I was, I was a little bit out of the teenage girl realm. Um, but I already, I mean, this was pre 30 rock. Uh, but I already yeah. enjoyed Tina Fey. I'd been watching her do Weekend Update on SNL. Um, I believe that was during the time she was doing it with Amy Poehler, which was my favorite era of SNL Weekend Update ever was Tina and Amy doing it together. And basically Tina and Amy doing anything together is one of my favorite things. And we'll we'll do Amy Poehler in a future <laughs> segment, I'm sure. Um, yes, cause, absolutely. Because, you know, she can't just be a mention in, in Tina's segment. She merits her own for sure. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Especially her book, which we don't have to get into. But yes, please was also an amazing oh, sort of yes. comedy memoir. Yes. 
Yes, please. Yes, and. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and please. Yes, yes please. Yes, please, and. and. Um, yeah, and uh, I want to talk about Bossy Pants for a minute since we're on yes. books. Um, because I, it is, it's one of the funniest books I've ever read. The first time I read it, uh, I read it in one sitting and I laughed out loud wow. pretty much the entire time. Um, and I, I think it's, it's great. Um, it's a great reminder to just not put up with any nonsense. Cause I feel like in general, professionally speaking, Tina doesn't put up with any nonsense. I mean, her hiring tips include things like don't hire anyone that you don't want to run into at the elevator at three in the morning. Yeah. You know, that's a reasonable um, assertion. <laughs> yeah. It's like to, just because someone is brilliant, if they're not a fun person to work with, uh, maybe take a pass. Um, and yeah, I just, I've gone on a lot of job interviews and sat on a lot of job interviews on the other side. And I feel like a big component of that process is figuring out if the person across the table from you is a good hang. Yeah. Can you see this person day in, day out? Do you, you know, feel comfortable with them? Do you share sensibilities? Uh, do you feel safe with them? Yeah, I absolutely think that in in hiring and I've I've gotten to do a little bit of hiring both um both in creative and non-creative roles, I guess. Like I've I've auditioned people and hired crew and then I've also hired like office people. And I think generally you hire the person the most qualified person that you like best. So you yes. <laughs> you hire the person who checks most of the boxes of the skills and stuff that you're looking for who is also the best fit in your team or the one you got along with best, because you are going to have to spend so much time with that person that I would yeah. rather teach someone the two skills they don't have than work with a jerk who is super qualified. <laughs> like, because you, can, you yeah. can teach willing people almost anything, you know? Yeah. Almost. Yeah, I mean, it's harder you, to teach personality things. <laughs> yeah, like you, you can't teach a tone-deaf person to sing, but outside of that, you can teach most people to do whatever it is you need them to do. Um, but so, uh, bossy pants is full of, of stuff like that, but I think some of her best advice, especially for creative people and something that I think about comes in a chapter called, um, I don't care if you like it one in a series of love letters to Amy Poehler. Um, and it's, um, it's kind of a reminder that your work might not be for everyone and that's okay. Um, so she tells the story about Amy's response to uh, they were they were in the writer's room and Amy was doing something ridiculous. And Jimmy Fallon basically said, oh, that's not cute. I don't like that. And <laughs> it says Amy went. I'm going I'm to quote this. Um, oh, I hear pages rustling. Yes. It says Amy dropped what she was doing, went black in the eyes for a second and wheeled around on him. I don't fucking care if you like it. Jimmy was visibly startled. Amy went right back to enjoying her ridiculous bit. Um, and then she makes it clear that Jimmy and Amy are friends and there was no real <laughs> confrontation. Like it was momentary and then it was over. But then she also, um, she talks about, you know, we, we don't care if you like it. And unless someone is in between me and what I want to do, it's irrelevant. And my, my favorite quote in the entire book is it's an impressively arrogant move to conclude that just because you don't like something, it is empirically not good. I don't like Chinese yeah. food, but I don't write articles trying to prove it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so my unsolicited... Although that would be a great satirical article. 
Yeah. But so my unsolicited advice to women in the workplace is this. When faced with sexism or ageism or lookism or even really aggressive Buddhism, ask yourself the following question. Is this person in between me and what I want to do? If the answer is no, ignore it and move on. Do your thing and don't care if they like it. Yeah, that's solid advice for anything. It really is. Um, so, and that's you the other like great part about that book. That's the other great part of that book is that it has a sort of flavor to it of like improv as life skills sort of yes. concept. It's There's been a whole a chapter on that. It, but yes, I've <laughs> read it. I'm trying to think, I read it at least twice and I also have the audiobook so I've listened to her read it at least twice I believe um, and so I just really like obviously whenever somebody performs their own material that's the best way to experience an audiobook but um, oh yeah I have the yeah, audiobook as well typically that was my first sort of introduction of the idea of yes and being something that you can apply outside of because I'm not an entertainer but outside of you know specifically doing improv you can yes and things in your real life Chris, I, I have to tell you something. Um, you have a podcast now. You are an entertainer. You are entertaining people well, it, right now. Well, spoiler alert, the podcast hasn't gone live yet. So <laughs> not, not technically true. <laughs> oh, oh, it's like that, is it? <laughs> yeah, I don't, think, uh, I don't think I get to call myself an entertainer quite yet. I don't know. You're attempting to entertain people. They just haven't heard it yet. It doesn't mean you haven't done the work. I guess you just mean that I'm entertaining you. <laughs> you are entertaining me. That is true. And, and soon the masses. Um, so uh, I guess to kind of sum up my Tina Fey segment, which I'll, I'll get better at summing up, guys, I promise. Um, I love Tina Fey, I think, because I love women who don't fit the Hollywood mold. Um, and spoiler alert, you're probably going to hear about a lot of them from me. Um, I love kind of unlikely successes, like, uh, and by that I mean people who aren't necessarily what Hollywood or the entertainment industry tells us we need to be. And I think that those rules are a lot stricter and a lot narrower for women. Um, but, you know, who don't fit that, but then who sort of, they find a way to break through anyway. And it's usually through some combination of sheer will and talent and hard work and usually wit. Um, and also yes. there's, there's always going to be some luck because you can have all that other stuff going for you, but you still at some point need to be in the right place at the right time. And in Tina Fey's case, it was, she happened to be on the writing staff when they were recasting weekend update and Lauren Michaels likes to promote from within. And so she was given a shot at a screen test and there, there was no way that that would have happened if she hadn't already had the writing job at SNL. So sure. right place, right time. But, you know, the work that she put in to get to SNL um, in her years doing improv before she even got there and the work she put in after that and still puts in creating the shows. And, and then the, I think the last thing that I will say um, that I, I really love and respect about the way she works is her insistence on making opportunities for others as well, that she knows how lucky she's been. She's made that really clear. Um, and she wants to give other women, in particular women, that opportunity, um, yeah. to, you know, that, that now that she's in a position to hire people, she wants to give opportunity to people who might not otherwise get it. And, and I, I, I like that it's, um, you know, until we all publicly found out that Kevin Spacey was a monster, he had a quote that I really liked <laughs> about how 
if you've been successful, if you've gotten to the top, it is your responsibility to send the ladder back down. And yeah. I do still think that's true. He is a monster, but I do, <laughs> I do think that that particular uh, quote, which might not even be his, he just used to say it. He may not have made it up, but but I think that that is true. And she's somebody yeah. that who, who she's someone who demonstrates that 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 you can send the ladder back down and, and help others achieve too. Well, I use a similar quote for that, so you can replace it if you want to attribute oh, good. somebody else. But uh, Pat Oswalt says that it's uh, in comedy, he refers to it as sending the elevator back down. Oh, okay, so I'll use that. To a higher floor. Yeah, use that down button for the next person to uh, get back in that elevator and join you on a higher floor rather than, mm-hmm. I don't know what the alternative would be, sealing up the elevator shaft? <laughs> <laughs> or just keeping the, the elevator where it is? Yeah. Yeah, no, I would yeah, much rather quote Patton Oswalt. I would much rather quote him. So uh, Patton, it is from now on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he seems like a good person. Absolutely. So if you uh, are familiar with Tina Fey, then you have all the reason in the world to go check out these things again. And if you weren't, uh, look at Mean Girls, look at Bossy Pants, look at 30 Rock. uh, Enjoy. Um, And look at some of her her lesser known stuff as well, Um, because there there are things that uh, you might not have noticed she did, like one of the Muppet movies and some some indie films. And check that out, too. We'll put all those links up for you. Oh, scour IMDb. Find all the fun stuff. (laughs) All right, Stevie, thanks for telling us about Tina Fey. My pleasure. So, Chris, did you bring a talent crush to talk about today? I did. Uh, I brought a really great one, I think. Um, we're currently in the middle of this important cultural conversation about diversity and representation mm-hmm. in popular media. And uh, there's somebody who I think is at the forefront of this debate. Uh, he's a writer, a podcaster, and a nerd pundit. Uh, his name is Mark Bernardin. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know who that is. Uh, awesome. That would make this uh, a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's a really great writer. Absolutely. Um, He writes a lot about themes of like diversity and inclusion that are innate properties of science fiction, fantasy and superhero stories, Mm -hmm. which are really all the rage now, like when you and I were uh, in our (laughs) formative years. Um, He spent really the last two decades as a writer and a journalist. Um, He's been on the staff of or freelanced for this amazing list of publications, including Starlog, Entertainment Weekly, Mm -hmm. GQ, Wired Magazine, Vulture, Empire Magazine, The Hollywood Reporter, Playboy.com, Sci-Fi and Nerdist News, The Guardian UK, and the most recent thing he did was he was the senior editor for the entertainment section of the LA Times. That's a pretty amazing resume. It's a heavy-duty resume. Yeah, that's impressive. Um, He's also in the... uh, non-journalistic work. He's written comic books for both DC and Marvel. He wrote on the staff of a TV show called Alphas, and Mm -hmm. he's currently staffed on J.J. Abrams' new series, Castle Rock, which is based on the works of Stephen King. So uh, I have a question. Is there anything he can't do? (laughs) I'm sure he could uh, leap tall buildings in a single (laughs) bound. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I came to know Mark as the co-host of Kevin Smith's Fat Men on Batman podcast, (laughs) which is uh, something that Kevin started, gosh, I want to say maybe six years ago. It's been a while. Kevin 
is a filmmaker and a podcaster, if anybody doesn't recognize him, which I imagine that's not a ton of people, but never know. Um, oh, Kevin, part of Kevin the, Smith? I, I need to <laughs> shout him out, actually, because... Um, Do Ke- you? Yeah, Kevin Smith is a big fan of Vancouver. And uh, we have a historic theater here called The Rio that um, yeah. is in East Vancouver, and it's in danger of being demolished and turned into condos, as every good thing in our city is. And oh, so no. right now, um, it'll be over by the time this drops, but we're we're in the middle of a massive citywide fundraiser so that the people who operate the Rio Theater can buy their building and keep it. And Kevin Smith was just here um, two days ago, three days ago. Oh, he did finally make it up there. A, That's awesome. A month after having a heart attack, he yes. was up here to do two benefit shows at the Rio that I haven't seen the numbers yet, but I'm sure brought in a ton of of money to help save it. So thank you, Kevin Smith. Yes, absolutely. He's a, a really big booster of communities of artists. He's and, great. Uh, that definitely expands, extends, pardon me, to Vancouver. And yeah, Kevin and Mark actually both had, um, shall we say, cardiac episodes recently as we're recording this. Oh, I didn't know and, about Mark's. Uh, yeah, he had a, a very brief um, hospital admission, mm. um, but they're both doing better. Um, good. and both, uh, on <laughs> vegetable diets, <laughs> which that's good. something I don't think anybody's <laughs> happy about, except those of us who love them and want them to be happy and healthy and alive. We want them to be alive. Keep eating your vegetables, guys, please. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about Mark specifically. Um, we may have Kevin as a uh, crush segment later on in the history of the show. Mm-hmm. And I would love to get each of them, both of them, any combination of Mark and Kevin uh, to actually talk to on our show. Open invitation, um, gentlemen. Yeah, that's right. We're sure, we're sure you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, someone might um, hear this and tell them. You don't know. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's easier to get people to podcast who are already podcasters. This is true. Um, and the, the great thing about their podcast is that they talk not just about all the stuff that we geek out about of Marvel and DC and Star Wars and all that good stuff, but they're coming at it from a place of like compassion and kindness. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not just talking about can Thor beat up the Hulk, which (laughs) is something we could probably go back and forth on forever if you're so inclined. Um, Maybe not in this segment. (laughs) it's a different show we might introduce Um, a new segment where we talk about who can fight whom (laughs) that's a possibility although i'm (laughs) hesitant to do that because it might mean the uh listenership of the show wondering which one of us could beat up the other and that's a whole path we don't (laughs) need to go down well you're taller Um, so i don't know you get that low center of gravity yeah i don't know it might be a fair fight well speaking of of (laughs) <laughs> fights and analyses. <laughs> um, the the enthusiasm that I have for Mark Bernardin's analysis is very strong. Let's call out a crappy segue. That was a crappy segue. Here we go. <laughs> Every time I read one of his pieces or listen to him talk on the podcast, I just feel like he has such amazing insight. And he talks about the good things and the bad things, but without saying that, oh, this here is the best thing ever, or this is garbage trash. Mm-hmm. Like, there can be space in the middle. A movie can be amazing, but still have flaws. A thing can be terrible, but still have, you know, a silver lining. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a 
a gradation, a, a shade of gray that is mostly missing from popular discourse, especially when it comes to nerd culture. And yep. so when I listen to him <laughs> make these points, I just feel like it makes me a better audience member and maybe even a better writer. He's really good at combining big picture with the really small details big social themes with these insanely personal experiences. And as you can tell, I can go on and on about how much I admire how he tells stories and talks about art. But uh, I think rather than do that uh, ad infinitum, I'm going to play a really quick, quick clip from a recent, now recent episode of Fat Man on Batman that kind of speaks for itself. So take it away, Mark. Um, my grandfather was born in 1900. Um, wow. Yeah. Turn the century baby. He was, he was a century baby. Um, so when I was born in 71, he was already a senior citizen, you know, and he died when he was 96. Um, and I didn't know anything about his life really, because so much of it happened decades before, you know, almost a century before I was born. And just that idea of the window on a century and what that must've been like. And like, oh shit, today we have radio. Oh shit, tomorrow the TV's color. Like, oh shit. And like, just, just trying to fill in the blanks of his life after he passed away was this beginning exercise in just character building and like, you know, the, the, the ballad of Cyril Lewis is what I'd called it because I just didn't know what it was. I'm gonna invent some shit. Like he drove a truck between New York and Washington DC during the war because he was too old to fight it. So what was in the truck? And I'm fucking inventing like spy shit. And I'm just, I'm doing all that stuff you do as like a 22 year old person who's just trying to start to get into, into fiction writing. And it just, it, it, it helped me begin that process of, of, of understanding what could make people tick and also blowing shit way out of proportion and not having anybody around to tell me I'm wrong, which is kind of great because my mother would never be like, no, no, he didn't do any of that shit. Oh no, your grandmother's his second wife. What? <laughs> so, you didn't write that into the story, no. did you? He was an international man of mystery as far as I was concerned. Um, but like that was just the sort of beginning of me just looking at, at character and looking at people and looking at like interior lives and imagining what that might be like. And then it was, my son was nine. He came home from school one day. This was like five years ago. He comes home from school. And like nine years old is about when they start teaching American history, but not well. You know, it's just like the, the greatest hits. We went to the moon, blah, 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 blah. And there were presidents and Revolutionary War and whatever. And so he comes home, he sits next to me. He's like, Dad, uh, I'm not sure I want to be black. And I said, okay, we're talking about this now. Because uh, every other question was like, so Pluto and Goofy are both dogs, but one of them can talk, why? Like a legitimate question from a nine-year-old. But this was more than I was about ready to deal with. So I was like, okay, why? Explain to me. He's like, well, because of slavery. Oof. I was like, yeah, all right. So we're going to do this now. Um, it's okay. Like nobody's going to come and take you away. Nobody's going to come and take me away. Like... It's over, it's distant history, it's, it's in the past. He's like, oh, all right, and then moved on because that's what you do when you're nine. Like nothing sticks, everything just glistens off the surface. But that conversation um, inspired me to write the thing that I had been waiting to write my entire life because he asked me this question. Why do I have to be black and why was there ever a slavery? And I wrote a thing and that thing got me the job on Castle Rock and that thing is opening doors for me that I never could have imagined. Because you don't think of those questions, you know, like when you're a grown ass person and you're like, oh, I don't know, what size shoes should I buy today? These jeans look awesome on my ass, but <laughs> real questions. Do you say that when you shop? I kind of do, man. 
Because you get that like octagonal mirror that like shows you shit, like Game of Death style. Um, <laughs> so yes, I mean, my, my family has bookended in, in a very real way, the kind of life that I have today and the, 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 the curiosity I have about story and character and the worlds that you can build in fiction that maybe should be the world you live in today or not. Um, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you, you are the people you bring with you through life and what you do in that life can't be divorced from that. So yeah, I mean, he's just such a compelling storyteller. Yeah, yeah, he really is. And um, I hadn't heard that before, so. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, Mark and Kevin do talk a lot about their families and the influences that they have on them and their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to pick that because Mark has written about his kids and Kevin, of course, talks about his daughter. And um that podcast is such a great forum for, as I mentioned before, bringing some kindness and some compassion to arguments that nerds tend to get real worked up about. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's, you know, the sort of conversation that he had to have with his son is, you know, a conversation that, that some of us never had to have with our parents. And so we might not realize that that other people have to have it and... What a difficult conversation to have to have with a nine-year-old or with any kid. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it sounds like he, like it went great. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my, my parents never had to sit me down and explain to me that my skin color meant anything. Um, yeah. And, you know, as an adult, I now understand that there lots of people do that, you know, I have friends whose kids will get that talk at some point and it's, it's an experience that, that, I didn't even know existed until I was an adult. So yeah, yeah, it's it's tough to broach your own bubble. And that's not an expression. Um, <laughs> sort of you can see the world through other people's <laughs> see the world through other people's eyes and make up weird analogies and metaphors. <laughs> I think the closest that I have to a story like that is uh, my family's Italian on my dad's side, and so when my little cousins were, gosh, in elementary school somewhere, I think the elder one was maybe fifth grade, there was some talk about Christopher Columbus. Oh, yeah. And how, you know, like popular view has sort of shifted from, you know, poetry and such when you and I were kids to like, oh, this was maybe not the greatest guy because of like enslavement of indigenous people and all that sort of terribleness. And maybe we shouldn't have a holiday in his honor. And maybe it's not enough that he's an Italian American icon. Yeah. Subcultural figures like that are difficult. Yeah. I mean, he, he discovered in quotes, a place that other people were already living in. (laughs) Yeah. That's troublesome. And so at the same time, I I think this is a, a kind of it's a good example of a shade of gray sort of scenario because you can say that the European missions across the Atlantic, they were bold, they were daring, they were these great adventures, they were these incredible exploits, the use of technology, the use of all known knowledge to get across this giant body of water. What they did there is also important to recognize and understand and internalize and deal with. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I have anything like that in my family. Like the closest analogy I have, which does, is not comparable, and I know that, um, is uh, my mother's side of the family is from Newfoundland, uh, which is a province in Canada. And when I was growing up, it was still kind of okay for people to make Newfie jokes. 
um, which are basically the idea was Newfoundlanders are stupid and so we can all make fun of them. But That's a little gross. Yeah. Uh, and I grew up knowing that I was essentially half Newfoundlander. I've never been there. Um, and my mother is the first person in our family born on the mainland. Her brother and parents and everyone before them for generations were born in Newfoundland. Um, so I never thought those jokes were funny. I always found them offensive. But, yeah. you know, trying to explain to people why that wasn't funny and if you sort of uh, came out, as it were, <laughs> as having Newfoundlander <laughs> blood, sometimes it just made it worse. So, um, as I say, that's not at all comparable to having to sit down your child and explain that there's this history of slavery. Um, yeah, there's a certain order of magnitude there, but I think everybody has, I think most everybody at one point in their life has the experience of being in some way on the outside of a popular discussion. I mean, we, in the States, we tend to use the term minority specifically to refer to ethnic minorities, mm -hmm. but everybody holds a minority opinion or minority values somewhere across the spectrum, whether you like pineapple on pizza I do. or your religious preference. <laughs> Me too, actually. But I think that makes us a minority of pizza enjoyers. It absolutely in does. Most yeah. contexts. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to make so, anyone else eat pineapple, but I want it every that, time. See, this is, this is an important <laughs> distinction. And I think that like the kind of articles that Mark writes help people to conceptualize or I guess what I mean is helps people to internalize more explicitly the implicit themes of sci-fi fantasy and superhero stories, because a lot of these stories are about inclusion. They're about how hard it is to be an outsider. I mean, mm. it's not even an open secret anymore. It's just a thing that we all talk about. The X-Men is sort of a parable for being gay. Mm -hmm. You have this thing that manifests at puberty and weird things happen to your body that you can't explain. And now you can't live the lifestyle that maybe your parents had imagined for you. Mm. And I think that when you grow up on these stories, I mean, as somebody who was a Star Wars nerd and a Star Trek nerd almost from birth, mm -hmm. like if you can think of Chewbacca or Data as people, who deserve, you know, respect and dignity. It's pretty easy to take those values into the real world and not treat others harshly just because they were born different. Yeah. Although it's 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 interesting cuz you alluded earlier to the fact that um sometimes the arguments in nerddom can be very strong and people have very firm opinions on what is and what isn't and it, it it boy how do you do it <laughs> yeah but it often it would seem that kind of um i'm gonna get myself in trouble if i use almost any word but that that sort of kind of pedantic thinking if we if you will okay um would seem to fly in the face of a lot of the messages that the thing they're arguing about is trying to send <laughs> Yes, yes. That, you know, if Star Wars is sending a message about inclusion, then some of the arguments would seem to that that the fans are making would seem sometimes to be against inclusion, which would seem to mean they'd miss the point of the thing in the first place. And that's the other problem is that when you have a population you know, those of us in our, say, 30s, 40s, 50s now who grew up on these things before they were popular, mm -hmm. some of us, you know, we were maybe the only kid we knew who liked fill in the blank, who liked the X-Men or Batman mm -hmm. or Star Trek. You were the only kid you knew who liked that. And so you hold it so preciously. And now that other people come along and they want to experience it also, it's hard not to feel like 
part of your experience is being taken away because you were used to being the only kid you knew who loved The Hobbit. Or you're, you were the expert. And that now other people that have well. opinions that you maybe hadn't thought of or that aren't yours or that, you know. And so yeah. somehow that's offensive <laughs> to people. Or or people just want to have, you know, a, a richer experience. Like, you know, you talk about gender and ethnic inclusion in Star Wars. Like, you can look at those classic movies and say, well, there's not a lot of ethnic diversity. And the reason for the fact that there's mostly white male extras is that they filmed in Britain in the 70s. And those were the actors they had to pull from. It wasn't necessarily a decision they made versus when you make new movies 40 years later the landscape is very different and the way people talk and think is very different. And so you, you have different voices at the table when these things are being made Yeah. and I don't have any special insight. I just have, you know, my fan level of expertise and adoration. I mean, um, I would be interested to, to see a census from Britain in the seventies because, you know, Britain has a, certainly England and certainly London has, for instance, quite a large Indian population. There's sure. for sure a black population there. I imagine, you know, that was true also in, in the 70s. So is that were those the actors they had or were those the people who were allowed to be actors at the time? Were those the people well, getting yeah. signed by the extras casting agencies or however they do it in Britain. I only know how we do it in North America, but is it that those people weren't there or is it that those people were being kept out? Because another thing you'll notice about Star Wars is there just are not a lot of women in the early films. You know, we, we had Leia, but there just aren't a lot of women. Now I know that the women existed in the seventies. <laughs> so it's not that they weren't there. It's that they weren't cast. And that's, and I, I yes. not necessarily blaming George Lucas for that. It, there's layers upon layers upon layers of systemic reasons why people are kept out yeah. of things. It's institutionalization. And I mean, that's as a, an amateur expert, which is a term that doesn't exist that I use regularly. Uh-huh. I can actually <laughs> answer. There are six speaking roles for females in the classic trilogy. Yeah. Six. And so, I mean, this is this is just a, a thing that looking back, and this is, let's loop back around to Mark before we wrap up here. Absolutely, This yeah. is the kind of thing that he both has very explicitly pointed out um, and <laughs> would be, um, yeah, so I can't remember exactly where I was going with that. This is a fun derailment of my mental train. Um, I did not mean to oh, derail wow. your mental train. No, I did that all by myself. Oh, this okay. is This is fun. Um, so, oh, that's what I was going to say. So the, (laughs) the fact that Star Wars is this incredibly important piece of media to so many people, it was formative in so many ways to cinema and pop culture, but it has these problems with it that we can look at from a few years later and say, this thing is amazing. And it also has some problems. Yeah. It doesn't make Star Wars bad. Um, Star Wars is good. I like the original movies. They're a little hokey. The special effects are (laughs) something else, but I, I do like them. And, and I think that should be clear. Like you said that things, things can, can be good and bad at the same time. It's not necessarily all one or all the other. And I I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of the, um, the Maya Angelou quote that when you know better, you do better. Sure. And so, now when we make Star Wars movies, we know better. We know to think about 
oh, hey, yeah. I bet there are women in this world. I bet there are people of a variety of backgrounds in this world. And wouldn't it be great if they all had parts in this and it actually looked like the world? And so yeah. now we do it and people make an effort to do it. And I hope more people will keep making an effort to do it because it doesn't take anything away. It makes it better. I have yeah. enjoyed, I like the original three movies. I have enjoyed um, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi much more because there's a female lead who is not, I mean, again, Carrie Fisher as Leia was wonderful. Um, but she's also a pretty heavy Iconic. presence in the two new movies that were made before she passed away. And so, yeah. but there are more women now to relate to and there are more women along on the adventures and that makes it better. It, you know? Yeah. And my, my button that I would put on this is that the more diversity you have in storytellers, the better stories you get. hundred percent agree. So that's that's our that's our diatribe on, <laughs> on diversity in media, and uh, I'm going to say to everybody, do a Google search for Mark Bernardin. His Twitter is a, a don't miss. I, mm -hmm. I try to look at it every day. Um, he's written, as I mentioned before, for a million different places. We'll throw up some up links to articles. Yes, there'll be tons of stuff in the show notes. Um, and I don't know anything about Castle Rock except it stars Melanie Linsky, so I'll be checking it out for sure. Cool, um, me too. It's supposed to be here around the middle of the year, I think, on Hulu. Um, and uh, there you go, Mark Bernard. Our guest today is Terry Brown, a multi-hyphenate performer. She's a singer-songwriter. She's an actor. She's a director. She's an author. And full disclosure, she's also a personal friend of mine uh, based in uh, just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Terry Brown. Hello. Hello. Hi, Terry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I feel so special. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. We, we appreciate it. You're one of our early guests, so it's very exciting for us, too. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so well, I had to go very far. I had to walk all the way to my spare bedroom <laughs> with my studio in it. So you're lucky that I was available because I almost had to stay in my bedroom all night, and that would have really been Oh, hard. wow. So this is I, I made it all the way to my living <laughs> yeah. room floor. That's where I'm currently located. Wow. Give the listeners a little window into our process. It's very glamorous here at Talent. Yeah, it we really is. Really Epic treks to make this happen. Yes. Chris, where, where are you in your house? In my bedroom. Yeah. Cozy. Also pretty much sitting on the floor. I feel left out. I'm the only one not in a bedroom. Well, you could like put a pillow down and get a blanket and get kind of cozy. I totally have one. Oh, see? <laughs> I mean, that's the same thing. That's probably where your guests sleep when they come. So It is actually. It's a yeah, and it's, uh, We match. It's all very comfortable and relaxed. Yes. So we want to start, Terry, by talking a little bit about your work or actually having uh, you talk a little bit about your work, because the point of the Talent Crush Chat show, as we've explained to the listeners, is that we invite people that we think are very talented and who impress us 
And so then we talk a little bit about your work and then also we'll invite you to talk about a talent crush of yours. Okay. Um, so I've, I find you impressive partly because of the multitude of things that you do and you seem to be good at all of them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thank you. That's very kind. I'm not good at taking compliments. So thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, I, I do a little of a lot of things and I think I do some of them very well and I do some of them not as well, but, uh, I really appreciate you saying that, (laughs) you know, uh, I I was just thinking the other day, actually, that I feel like, uh, it was international women's day. Remember, yep. and I feel like women have a really hard time taking compliments and talking themselves up more, more so than men even. And um, I was kind of trying to use that day to like promote my work on Twitter. But mm-hmm. I feel I, every time I do it, I like I feel awful. I feel so bad like, <laughs> showing people my work and being like, here, listen to this, because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm conceited or something. But like, how else are they going to ever hear anything I do? But I have to get over it, but it's a whole thing. It's been a thing my whole life. I totally hear you because I feel the same way that whenever I promote any creative project, I feel like, like, who am I to ask people to spend their time watching, listening to my thing? Like, I'm nobody. Why, why am I asking them to spend their time doing that? Um, and it does, it feels weird. It's so stupid. We're awesome. We should be very, (laughs) like, we should be very proud. And I'm very happy to watch your work and share your work. And I know you you are as well to share mine. Yeah, always. Yeah. Yeah. We have to get over it. It's it's the worst. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely suffer from that as well. But I also notice that not a lot of guys do. (laughs) There's, I mean, I think that meme of give me the confidence of a mediocre white man is very, very true. I was just thinking of that. As a mediocre white man, I feel like that's not, hashtag not all mediocre (laughs) white men, but still. (laughs) I do definitely notice that not a lot of women, regardless of the level of their accomplishment, objectively feel great about just the slightest little bit of promotion. And I think that maybe you just kind of have to think of it as like a business decision. It's like right now I'm my social media manager and I'm promoting this work. It's not, I don't know, there's not an easy solve for that, of course, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to do to tell people, look how great it I It does help to yeah. compartmentalize though, if you can do that, if you can say like, as you did. Now I'm my own social media manager and it's my job to promote my client's work and my client just happens to be me. Um, yeah, that, yes, exactly. that is a little bit easier. That That's true. I've, I've been forcing myself. So. I mean, you have to in, until you it. can afford a publicist. <laughs> um, but let's talk about some of the stuff, Terry, that you are good at. Do you, do you think of yourself now primarily as a singer songwriter or as a multi-hyphenate creative? I do. Or, yeah. Yeah, right now, I mean, I'm focusing so much on music right now, and it's hilarious, actually. I was um, I was talking the other day about going back to school in front of my son, and he said, Mom, you're a musician. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that made me so happy, because I don't have the confidence that he has to just say, yeah, that's what I am, you know? <laughs> and ever since then, yeah. I've been like, you know what, I am a musician. Yeah, right, side, right on. Thank you. You know, sometimes you need someone else to tell you in order to like give yourself that push. But yeah, no, I definitely see myself as a musician right now. And I'm, I'm making it my job, which I never have really in the past. I mean, 
years ago, whenever I was really into writing and recording a lot of music, I was I was doing it a lot and I was doing it often, but it was more of a hobby. Mm-hmm. And it was a hobby I was doing daily, but I wasn't treating it as a job the way I am now. Um, I also had more free time back then because I didn't have a child. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's probably part of the reason why I have to do it a little bit differently now. But um, I stay up really late recording. I have to schedule it out so that I know that my husband will get up with our son the next morning. Um, and doing it that way and giving myself goals to reach, like um, my first goal was I wanted to, I wanted to have a whole EP out by Valentine's Day. That didn't happen. But I did have my first single out by Valentine's Day. So I I felt pretty good about that, at least reaching, you know, a little bit of that goal. Uh, I want to do the whole EP sometime in the spring, hopefully before summer hits. But I'm trying not to be too strict with my deadline because things keep coming up. And I keep kind of changing the direction that I'm going and adding songs and, you know, trying to figure out exactly what I want recorded on there. So that's been good. I have... My point is, I've been treating it as a job. Well, that's great. <laughs> Which so that's now a really hard thing yeah, to do. <laughs> so yes, I would say I'm a musician now. Yes, singer songwriter. Um, actually, my goal is more to write. I I love singing, and I I sing well. I can say that with confidence. I do sing well, but um, I I just am, I don't love performing. Mm. So I don't want to go on a tour. I don't. You know, I have no interest in doing that. I, I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to bring my family with me. You know, at my age, also like it's just not. It's just not something I want to do. I have no dreams of becoming a rock star right now, you know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so really, my I don't have huge goals for music right now. Uh, you uh, you don't see yourself standing on a big stage in front of a bunch of people. No, I mean I could do it. I was in a band um, a while back, like a couple years ago, but um, it wasn't. It, it was someone else's band, and so I I sang backup and I played like small percussions, and it was fun. But it really made me see I do not want that for myself <laughs> because it's just mm-hmm. it's more of a commitment than I want. And I get stage fright and it's fine. Like I'm I'm pretty good on stage. I I get over it pretty quickly. But um, I just I really enjoy writing more than anything. So I would like I would like to write for other artists. Um, I would like to have other artists cover my songs that I have now. Also, that's kind of my main goal. So. That's my goal with putting things on Spotify, putting things on iTunes, just getting the tunes out there so that other people can hear them and hopefully hopefully say, hey, I would like to cover this, or hey, can you help me write a song, or, you know, something like that. So. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good time to talk about your single, Falling Down. Mm-hmm. I watched the video for it a couple times. I think it's really compelling. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yay. Can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about where that idea came from and... Yeah, I actually wrote the song really quickly. I had been looking through Instagram. You know the Discover tab on Instagram that shows yes. you? Yep. Yeah, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I wound up with all these Instagram models in my Discover tab. So I started looking. <laughs> like, I didn't like any of their stuff. I don't know how they came there. but um, So I, I started looking at them a lot, and they were so depressing to me because, you know, they're not supposed to be depressing. They're supposed to be like, oh, I want that life. But that's not what I see. It's aspirational, but it I don't find it aspirational. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it depends. I mean, 
I don't know. It, it depends, like, on the person, I think. But for the most part, most of those people who are the professional Instagram models, it's it's so curated. And, you know, I'm looking at – I was looking at one the other day, and it was, like, this couple. And she she was up, and she jumped up with her, like, legs around them. And they were eating an ice cream cone. <laughs> and, like, the it was so lame. I'm like – this is so posed. Like, you know someone is there taking the picture. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The mic's not picking it up, but I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah. They want you so, to forget there's a but, photographer I mean, it there. Was, it was more based on, I think, the um, like the, the women who who they photoshop themselves so much that they look like they're mannequins and you know a lot of them I one in particular um I was I was going through her feed and her whole feed all her pictures kind of look like they're in black and white because she has silver hair Mm. and all of her furnishings are white and she's super tan but they're not that's just like her life she like lives in this white world it's all like perfect and white and it was so weird that was so bizarre to me. Monochromatic existence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of got me to thinking. I'm like, oh, my God, they must be so miserable because if someone sees them in real life, they're not going to recognize them. They're not going to know who they are at all. And if they want to meet someone in real life who they've met online, they probably have all this anxiety because they're so used to um, putting this image out of themselves that is not at all who they are in real life. I mean, it's who no one is. Yeah. So that's where the idea for it came from. It was about um, uh, being afraid to show someone who you really are because you're so used to um, filtering yourself. And it's not only them. Like, we all do it. It's social media in general. I do it to a degree. Um, Whenever I meet someone new, if I meet them online, I am a little afraid to meet them in person. I actually met Stevie in person after meeting her online, though. That's true. So... Yeah. And we did just fine. Well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had a great time. Like you didn't, yeah, you didn't look at me and be like, oh, she has pores or anything <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't look at me that way either. <laughs> no, we were fine. Yeah. We even ate ice cream together, so. <laughs> we did, I think, was it frozen hot chocolate? Is that where we went? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we went to Serendipity. Yeah. Um, in New we, York. Uh, it was we have, so fun. We have pictures of that somewhere. We might throw one up on the episode page. Um, yeah. Let's. Yeah, oh, wait, so I'll have to filter it first. I got to make sure I look good. <laughs> wait. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so so for the listeners, Terry and I have known each other for um, several years now, but we did meet each other online, um, and we had an online friendship for, I don't even know, quite a while. And then eventually we um, we met in person when I happened to be in New York. Well, Stevie and I actually met for the first time in person at this year's San Francisco Sketch Fest a few weeks ago after knowing each other on Twitter for like a year and a half. <laughs> so, What were we talking about? Oops. <laughs> um, we were talking about uh, the sort of dishonesty of social media. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So anyway, that's what I wrote the song about. And then <laughs> that's what I ended up making the video about. And I... Uh... I made the video on my phone screen. I just got a phone screen recorder. Mm-hmm. That was free, by the way. Um, Very cool. Although now it's sending me all these weird notifications telling me there's some kind of a game going on, like a trivia. It just, they just started, like yesterday. <laughs> it's like, play trivia, win $2,500. I'm like, what? Why? What? <laughs> You're just recording my screen. I don't want to play a game with you. Yeah. So I might have to uninstall it. But yeah. So, yeah, but they know who you are now. <laughs> I know. Well, we're all yeah, those being things are listening to you all the time (laughs) all the time oh it terrifies (laughs) me i'm never getting an alexa 
So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. They scare me. Our <laughs> no, phones okay. are already listening to me all the time. I don't need something that can hear me say its name. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So anyway, my sorry. <laughs> my uh, no, I I never want one of those ever ever in my house. Thank yeah. you. Everyone thinks I'm crazy and paranoid, but I I don't know. That's when the robots are going to take over. Yeah. My son's always... We're all crazy and paranoid together because yeah. I'm on that same page. I don't want yeah. the thing listening to me. Awesome. Good. Yeah, every time my son sees something about AI uh, learning, like like what was that mannequin or that, that female robot that looks like a woman and she just started like talking? Oh. Do you know who I'm talking I about? I do. Chrissy Teigen was talking about her. Yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but yes. I don't either, but my son saw it, and he's like, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, don't you people know the robots will take over? (laughs) He's he's very adamant that robots will be the end of people, and I, I can't disagree with them. I mean, I've seen enough movies to, like... I mean, he might be right. A friend of mine was staying with me a couple of weeks ago and she showed me this video of um, robot seal pups and they're meant for old people with dementia. Um, They they move a little bit, but they don't really go anywhere. And they put little uh, like heartbeat machines in them and they're meant to act as pets and keep uh, elderly um, people with dementia sort of company so that they can have the feeling of having a pet, but they don't have to manage it in terms of cleaning a litter box or, um, you know, taking it outside. It's just sort of, it's, it's like a robotic stuffed animal that they can hug, but it is weird and creepy. I mean, it's cute, but then you Why realize what seals? it is and it's weird. That's the weirdest part. I guess so it's that, not weird that, that they don't know. walk around. Maybe that's it. Like, I don't know why they didn't make it a dog or a cat. They made it a seal. Um, I don't know. You can you can you... Google, like, robot seal pup Japan, and it'll come up. Oh, I'm going to Google it. Don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm doing right after this. They're adorable and creepy at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely going to be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Someone get us back on track. Sorry. Well, why don't we transition <laughs> to talking about Terry's talent crush? Oh, yeah. yeah. Who did who oh, did you bring duh. to talk about? This is hard because, I mean, come on. <laughs> How, who, who, it's like picking a favorite movie or a favorite song. I mean, who can do that? That's, that's crazy. Um, honestly, for music, probably Jewel. Okay. Okay. Like, my whole life I've loved her and... Um, She's she's very positive, and I like that. And now she's a mom, and she's still working. Um, but honestly, like, I probably follow her less now than I used to. Um, maybe I, I would probably go with Drew Barrymore as, like, my main talent crush just because she's a producer. She's an actress. You know, she she makes her own work. When she doesn't see something out there for her, she'll make it happen. She also owns a cosmetics company now, and she's a mom. It's, like, she does everything. And she seems like the sweetest person in the world. Like, who wouldn't want to meet Drew Barrymore, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i can be on board with that yep yeah have you guys seen that movie my date with drew no i have not oh my gosh it's so good it's probably like 10 15 years old and it's about this guy it's a documentary it's about this guy who the whole movie is him trying to get a date with drew barrymore and 
he does it at the end. Like, and, and does he manage this in a non-creepy kind of a way? Yeah, I mean. Oh, no. <laughs> like, is he stalking yeah. Drew or is he? He, was, he wasn't really stalking her. It was really sweet, the whole thing. He was just trying to figure out a way. He was trying to do it by six degrees of separation. Okay. And it was so sweet. But by the end of the movie and when she was finally in it and came on, and you saw how sweet she was and down to earth. And I just became such a fan of hers. Well, I kind of was actually, I think when I was... 12 or 13 I read her autobiography that she wrote when she was 13 wow. oh little girl lost Did you ever read yeah that? yeah little girl lost and um I just immediately liked her then and I kind of have been following her ever since but um I I follow her on social media now and she's just so great and positive and sweet and real mm-hmm. because um along with the social media thing with the filtering you know there's a lot of celebrities who they do make everything look beautiful. Like Reese Witherspoon is another person I really like, but everything on her social media feed is perfect. You know, yeah. it's like, it's basically a lifestyle blogger is what she is. But Drew Barrymore, she's always like doing videos of herself, like without makeup on and just being normal. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that she does that. I feel like it's so good for women to see someone so successful, to be a role model like that and to not be afraid to show who she really is. You know, that's so cool. Yeah, I think there's always been a like a sincerity to her that I've appreciated. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have to be the best actress. She's she's a good actress, but like you know, she doesn't take like crazy meaty roles or anything. It's just her personality that I like, mm-hmm. and that's I maybe that's because I see that see myself a little bit in that. Like I don't go for I don't shoot for the moon, you know, <laughs> for myself. <laughs> Like, as long as you're doing something that makes you happy and you're you're creatively fulfilled, I think you're good. And you don't have to, for, for me anyway, like, I don't have to, like, go and win a Grammy to be happy with myself as a musician. Mm. And I don't have to, uh, you know, get a movie, ma- uh, like, a big budget movie made to be ha- happy with myself as a writer for anything I've written. Like, I'm happy writing something and um, filming it myself. And if people respond to it, that's great. That's really all I want is just for people to respond to something. That so I you don't have an EGOT on your vision board? <laughs> no, I, I don't think I am focused enough to ever get to that. Like, <laughs> I did study musical theater in college, but um, uh, and I love musical theater. I love Broadway. But uh, no, no. <laughs> I don't. Th- I can't put myself out there enough. You know, I used to audition for things, and I just, I would, I would just drive myself crazy beforehand, and I would often talk myself out of auditions before I would even go, just because I was so afraid of uh, of what would happen when I got there. So, like, even if I almost talked myself out, just because I was afraid I would get the things that I really wanted. So, yeah. <laughs> Again, my whole life's a struggle. <laughs> I I talked myself out of my first big audition. Really? I did years ago. Like it was um this would have been around 2002, 2003. Um I yeah. think I'm safe to tell the story now, but I got I was fresh out of acting school and I think I'd had one or two commercial auditions. Um and I'm a person who likes to be prepared and in general it took me a while to enjoy auditioning because I just find it very nerve-wracking. Um, but I yeah. got an audition for 
a remake of Freaky Friday. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> uh, well, no, this was 15 years For ago. The Lindsay Lohan one. The role eventually went to Lindsay Lohan, um, but I I oh. got the not the whole script for it, but a chunk of the script because that was the role that they wanted me to audition for. And at the time, it wasn't Jamie Lee Curtis; it was going to be Annette Bening. And I was 23, huh. 24, and I looked enough like Annette Bening that I could be her daughter, and I looked young enough at twenty four that I could have played fifteen, sixteen. Um, and I was terrified (laughs) and uh I didn't go I called my agent at the time and and said I I I can't do this I can't possibly go um she was mad and and rightly so and I cannot to this day believe that she didn't drop me because knowing what I know now like you should fire your client if they refuse (laughs) To go to an audition that you got for them, especially for something like that. And I think I just, um, one thing that a lot of, of acting programs aren't great at is teaching the audition process properly and mimicking it properly and getting you used to it. And so it felt like jumping off a cliff and, and Mm -hmm. I just, I I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And that is the only time. That I've ever done that. That's the only time I've ever... I mean, I've, I've said no occasionally to auditions if the material was something that I didn't want to be associated with. Um, like, I've said no to auditioning for a cigarette commercial that was going to run overseas because we yeah. haven't advertised cigarettes in Canada in most of my lifetime. Um, or here, yeah. Yeah, and I've said no to, um, to material where it was just too... Um, either way too violent or um, there was a, a case once where I just, I didn't agree with the messaging that the film was sending. I just, I just thought it was the wrong message to be giving out to humanity. Um, so I said no to that. You know what? That's really hard because so much of film is that, you know, I mean, that's kind of why I stopped. I used to do a lot of extra work and that's why I stopped doing extra work because it's all stereotyping Mm. and you're feeding into it. You know, I mean, by nature, it's stereotyping being an extra because they're like, we need your type. Yeah. You know, it's like, we need, we need upscale. Oh God. What was that? It was always an upscale restaurant (laughs) or a club goer. I was always a club goer. They always wanted me as a club goer, which is weird because I don't go to clubs. Come on. Um, Oddly, they never would hire me as a mom, even though I am a mom. I don't look like a mom. Yeah, I know. And that kind of thing really bothered me. And just the casting notices, they got so tiresome because it was always, it was always they needed attractive women in their 20s or, you know, and I'm like, that's messed up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it started to really bother me because I'm like, you know what? Not everyone in the world's attractive. And now I am, I am part of the problem of people thinking that everyone in the world is attractive. (laughs) by taking these jobs because you know i don't i just i don't want to help them so it's it's a struggle the the flip side of that is also weird i mean when you get uh character breakdowns that say things like real people not too pretty and it's just it's a bit of a self-esteem hit to get you know yeah often real people is code for not beautiful well, then I imagine the phone call between the casting director and the agent, which is like, oh, no, don't worry. She's not too pretty. She'll be fine for this role. Like that's This is just gross all the way around. 
I yeah. I, I don't think it's going they that far. I think once it's just as a email. CD pedestrian. CD pedestrian. Yeah, it was really funny. It was for Gotham, and um, I got there, and over the over the phone, they I I was trying to go for something else, and they're like, you know, I think we'll just use you as a CD pedestrian. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I I show up, and oh and I check in, and they're like. You don't look like a CD pedestrian. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you because that's what they hired me as. So they they dressed me as a hooker, and then I had to walk back and forth on the street all day long in this skin tight dress. Like I could not breathe in it. In these high heels, my feet hurt so oh. bad by the end of the day. It was it's terrible. It is awful. Yeah, it was. I mean. Don't get me wrong. I had a lot of fun doing extra work, and I met a lot of great people. But, um, yeah, it's really it, – it's hard. It's harder than one. Yeah, as somebody who's not really a performer, all of these stories just sound scary. <laughs> like, yeah. this is the closest I've gotten to performing in my life is literally this recording of podcast. <laughs> really? Yeah. You're so good at oh. it. I had no idea. It's because I'm letting Stevie take the reins. <laughs> no, you sound great. You have you have a great voice. Oh, that's, thank you very much. I'm wonderful. also bad at taking compliments, so I have to remember to say thank you and make my therapist proud. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's all you can do. Just say thank you. Just say thank you all the time. That's all I do. If someone pays me a compliment now, I just automatically say thank you, and then I try not to think about yeah, it. Correct response. Because <laughs> then if I think about it, then I'll yeah. Because if I think about it, then I'll just start like proving them wrong yeah <laughs> like oh you like my eyes well actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know they're very dry and i have allergies look how red they are yeah you internalizing know, a compliment can send you into like an existential tailspin <laughs> yeah let me point out all my flaws before yeah. you start to notice them who am i really inside exactly. <laughs> and that's what my song's about look we came full hey circle. you're welcome <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Look at that. So, uh, Terry, before we let you go, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, let's see here. I don't. I don't, oh, don't want to talk about myself. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll talk about you for a second. Terry does have a single called "Falling Down" that you've heard us talk about, and that is available for purchase on iTunes. Uh, you can also find her. It's on iTunes. It's Spotify. It's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's on all the places that music is. Yep, so. and uh, you have some other songs out there in those places as well, right? So, um. I do. Yeah. Um, right now, I have. Well, right now, I have most of my old stuff um, just on a SoundCloud. But I am working on an EP that will be out in spring. Fingers crossed. Spring. <laughs> um, maybe late spring, <laughs> but um, hopefully in the spring. Uh, that will have um, five or six songs on it, depending. And um, look for that. And I'll have another single out before then. Um, uh, that will be for charity. And I will release more information about that. Okay. Well, we'll keep a lookout for that and keep everybody posted. And we'll uh, we'll put it in the show notes if we have it by the time this launches. Thank you. Hooray. I like it. That makes me so happy. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Terry. It's so nice to have other people talk about me so I don't have to just talk about myself. <laughs> well, be forewarned, we're going to talk about you more after we stop talking to you because we're going to record the intro. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. That's terrible. It's all going to be nice. I'm always afraid people are talking about me, and now I know you're going to be talking about me. This is terrible. Oh, it's all going to be positive, I promise. 
Okay, I hope so. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll say nice things about you guys. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was very. I'll find someone and I'll be like, hey, <laughs> I just had the best conversation with these really nice people. You want to hear about it? <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you again. This was so much fun. Yeah, thanks for joining thank us. Thank you so much. Okay, it's time for our segment, Unreliable Advice, where you ask us questions and we answer them to the best of our ability while taking absolutely no responsibility for any potential fallout. So (laughs) we have a couple of great questions today. Um, Full disclosure, they come to us from the same person who we know on Twitter as Pancake for the Table and who, uh, as Chris knows, I like to call the Pancake People. So... (laughs) Pancake asks, I'm going to pitch this one to Chris, and he's going to give it a whirl, and then he'll give me a question. So, Chris, Pancake asks you, what's your advice for getting over post-TV show depression? This is a really interesting thing, because, I mean, I'm going to interpret this the way I want to interpret it, because it's our show, so take yeah, that, do Pancake it. people, and everybody else. <laughs> um, mostly we love you, I Pancake. Experience- Of course. Thank you for listening. Thank you for saying nice things about us on your show. Um, The way that TV show depression usually manifests for me is when I've like binged a whole big series. Mm -hmm. And I did that a couple times recently um, because that's just the way we consume TV and series type media now. But uh, recently uh, Altered Carbon and Jessica Jones on Netflix. And then just a couple days ago, as I'm recording this Bosch on Amazon, uh, and yeah, it is hard to spend, you know, 10, 15 hours with a character and a world and feel like that's sort of your world because maybe you're spending more time there than in your real life with the people in your real life. So what do you do when there's no more Kristen Ritter or Titus Welliver in front of you all the time? <laughs> that's that there's no really good answer for that. Um, I think that the obvious answer is go binge something else. Cause why not just keep <laughs> hopping from lily pad to lily pad and never looking down and never examining yourself. Uh, a more yeah, just realistic... get a new show. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep going. Or you know what? Start over. I really <laughs> wanted to do that with altered carbon, except that was very like no spoilers, but that was sort of twist dependent in certain ways. Like the mm. experience of watching that the first time through, because of the way they did the casting and the, the chronology of the series was really interesting. And so I didn't feel like I could just jump right back in and be as satisfied with it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, go look at things that those actors or producers or uh, I guess creators is what I meant more than producers have done as well. So if you want some more Titus Welliver, go hop on his IMDb page and see what else he's done to get your non Bosch Bosch fix. <laughs> yeah. I find, um, that the, the post TV show depression thing is, it, first of all, it's not a large problem in my life. I want to make that clear, but it's a bigger it hits, problem for me. <laughs> it hits me more, um, when a show ends. So when a long running show that I've been watching stops producing. So the end of a season isn't usually a problem for me. Um, but I was sad when the X-Files ended the first time. 
<laughs> and dissatisfied the second time and quite satisfied this third time. And obviously I'm not counting the movies. Uh, but back in 2002, I had grown up with that show. It came on the air when I was 15. I watched it until I was 24. Um, that, you know, that was a, that's a major, you know, it was, it was a big part of my uh, sort of entertainment cycle on a weekly basis. And so that felt like a big loss. Um, and more recently, um, I actually, I'm quite sad that they won't be making any more of the series love on Netflix. Cause I really loved yeah. that. It was Gillian Jacobs and Paul Rust. And, and I thought it was just a really beautifully done portrait of two insecure, messed up people trying to have a relationship and it's, it's so well <laughs> done. And I'm sad that it's only going to be three seasons. Um, yeah, but, I haven't dived into the third season yet because I know it's the last season. I'm like, I don't know if I want to go through all that quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really good though. It's really good. Um, oh, I, also, like, yeah, I believe it. Like when Thirty Rock ended. So, so for me, it's it's usually the when the show ends. Um, so a couple things. One, you can revisit it on DVD whenever you like. Um, but I know I said this jokingly earlier, but also get a new show. There's so much yeah. content out there. Um, Too I much. recently, yeah, I mean, I recently just started watching uh, the Good Fight with Christine Baranski. And I thought, after the first episode, I thought, finally, an acceptable substitute for The Good Wife, which was my Sunday <laughs> night show for years, and I have missed it. And now I finally have something else I can watch. Um, we don't get CBS All Access in Canada, so I had to buy it on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my, my advice is, um, yeah, find something else. Find something else that you find entertaining. Or yeah. um, I, there is this thing called outside. Um, and that is a place where what? you can also go. Yes. Uh, there is air and sky and depending on where you live, possibly water and maybe grass wow. or sand. Uh, it's a mystical, wonderful place. Sometimes there are other people in it. Most of the time there are other people in it. And, um, you know, sometimes yeah. the best, the best cure for post-show depression is to get away from the TV. Do we have that here or is this just a Canadian thing? I think you guys have outside, but I, I don't know how many of your laws have changed in the last 18 months. So who knows? Oh, good Lord. Well, let's not get too <laughs> terribly drawn away from dispensing comedy wisdom. Uh, the, let's, let's move on to another one that, speaking okay. of, of the great ennobled Canadas, uh, <laughs> we're going to direct at Stevie because it's uh, something she has some more familiarity with. I'm so excited uh, if, for this. <laughs> Uh, if somebody has a, a limited amount of time, mm -hmm. uh, should they watch, you can't do that on television or kids in the hall. <laughs> um, first of all, these are fascinating choices. <laughs> like, <laughs> absolutely fascinating to me. Um, okay. So, uh, for the listeners, I expect we have some listeners in Canada, but we probably also have some who aren't. So, um, for those who are not familiar. Although I think both of these at some point ran in the States. Uh, you can't do that on television. Went through several iterations. It actually started, I think, in the late 70s and ran all the way oh, wow. to 1990 in various iterations. The cast turnover was huge, but there were a couple of people um, who are not, they're not big name people, but there are a couple of people who stayed with it um, for quite a long time. Uh, the, the most famous name that you might immediately recognize who was briefly a cast member is Alanis Morissette. Ah, um, yes, that's a name I know. Yeah, and if, if you want to go on YouTube, uh, you can find her episodes. I think she, she was on it for like a season. Wow. Um, yeah, 
uh, it's a kids show, and uh, it sort of was. It was a it was a parody of a bunch of things. Um, like their opening credits are. Uh, the children's television sausage factory, which I I believe is a parody of, <laughs> of the children's television workshop, which makes Sesame oh. Street and uh, and made Square One at the time. And if anyone remembers Square One and MathNet, and um, oh, yeah. I think they were parodying that stuff with this. And then they also had a bit that I think was in every episode, or at least in a lot of them, where the kids would pop out of lockers and do jokes. And that's clearly a parody of of Rowan and Martin's Laugh In. Um, which I used to watch on PBS and reruns. So I, I don't know how many kids got the joke, but certainly their parents would have at the time. <laughs> so I guess, uh, so, the, oh, and, and uh, it was also, they had a couple of running gags and the one that people will remember, and this is my biggest memory of You Can't Do That on Television, which was not a show that I, you know, grew up watching all the time, but it was on and I was aware of it, um, was every time somebody answered a question with, I don't know, green slime would drop from, I think, a bucket yes. and, and just drip all down them. Um, and also, if they said the word water, a bucket of water would would be thrown on them. So, yeah, I think those are the most famous legacies of that show. Yeah, it, it ran on something called YTV in Canada. It ran on Nickelodeon in the States. It's a Canadian show that Nickelodeon picked up. Um, and it, definitely a kid's show. Uh, kids in the Hall is a comedy sketch show. <laughs> less um, of a kid's show. Less of a kid's show. Comedy sketch show. It was, it was a bunch of guys probably in their 20s at the time. Mm, maybe so, yeah. into their 30s. Uh, let me think. Uh, Kevin McDonald, Dave Foley. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on names. Chris, do you remember? I, I do, but I'm also blanking on the name. So Bruce I'm McCullough was on Bruce it. Bruce McCullough, absolutely. That's three um, of the five. Um, I'm currently oh, Googling as we're okay. recording, which this is, is terrible. Scott I'm a Thompson Canadian. I should know and this. And Kevin McDonald, Dave Thompson, and... Mark McKinney and Scott Thompson. Mark McKinney, yes. Okay. So we said everybody's so, name at least two or three times. We got them, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Dave Foley and Bruce McCullough are the ones I remember best. Um, okay. And it, it was it was a, a sketch show. It was um, kind of Saturday Night Livey, kind of. Also, uh, kind of like Mister Show. If anybody kind of like Mister Show. Show, yeah, it was it was probably more like it wasn't necessarily done live. It was all pre-taped. A lot of their segments took place outside. <laughs> yes. Um, there may have been an audience for some of them. I, I I remember it again. I wasn't a huge fan. It felt honestly, it felt like kind of a guy show to me. Um, when yeah. I was growing up, because there were just no women on it, uh, but I have revisited <laughs> you count it. Dave Foley and drag. Yeah, but that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> but I, I have revisited it a little bit, uh, especially since this question was asked, and I have to say it's really, really very funny. Um, so, to answer your question, I would say if if you're looking to revisit one or the other of those shows because they meant something to you. If you're over 12, I would go with the kids in the hall. I think it's funnier. <laughs> and I think it's a little more um, timeless uh, in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you can't do that on television is great. Like if you're showing it to your kids or um, if you're revisiting your childhood, then then go with you can't do that on television. But otherwise, I think uh, kids in the hall is probably a more solid choice. However, yeah. if you're just going for pure Canadian TV nostalgia... Uh-oh. Well, now, you've got to watch Danger Bay, 
Danger which, Bay. Danger Bay, which was uh, a thrilling show from the 80s. Uh, Donnelly Rhodes starred in it. He was a marine biologist. He had two kids and they solved crime. Ooh. Yeah. So uh, look up. It was great. Look up Danger Bay. Danger Bay was great. Uh, Also, The Littlest Hobo is. (laughs) It should be our least proud moment of Canadian television. It ran so long. Oh, The Littlest Hobo, if you don't know, is a show about a dog. It's a little bit like Lassie, except in Lassie, the dog lives in a place with a family. This is a hobo (laughs) dog that just goes from place to place. Uh, helping people out, but won't stay anywhere. Every single family or person tries to adopt the dog and the dog always runs away. And the next episode, he's out saving somebody else from, I don't know, being down a well or falling off a ladder or he runs into people hobos. And um, this thing, (laughs) it ran so long that the dog died and had to be replaced by an identical looking dog. They were German shepherds. Oh my God, they did a rin tin tin to him. Basically, yeah, it, uh, it lasted, I think it was on for at least 11 years. Wow. Um, in the 70s and 80s, it was a very long-running, <laughs> very ridiculous TV yeah. show. This um, is such a weird trend in 70s TV with, like, The Fugitive and The Hulk and all these shows where yeah. uh, Kung Fu, where somebody travels from town to town and helps people out, and that's the pitch of your show. Yeah. I, I, and why does and so when it's a German shepherd. make it to the air? Yes. I, what is this dog doing? It's... <laughs> earning Um, fat residuals for his puppies it's a hell of an actor dog i gotta say that um Mm -hmm. so now and in in all seriousness if you would like to see some really good canadian television uh not listen those things were great degrassi is great i understand that america has come to love degrassi (laughs) as much as we do and i would like to say that degrassi the next generation is not classic degrassi classic degrassi is the kids of degrassi street um, okay which, which was then uh, that morphed as the children got older, the show kept growing. So we went from kids of Degrassi street to Degrassi junior high to Degrassi high. Then they all graduated. And then, then like 15 years later, we came back with Degrassi, mm-hmm. the next generation. <laughs> and now whatever Degrassi <laughs> is happening now is the never ending show. Um, or throw all of that away. Stop watching Canadiana because while we're good at it, we can do other things. And for God's sake, watch some Orphan Black. That is maybe the best show we've ever yeah. made. Yes, that that I think we might have to submit this to Mark and Hal on We Got This for like what's the best what's the best Canadian TV show so they can, they can officially them, yeah. arbitrate. <laughs> but there's a lot of great Canadian TV that isn't necessarily. I know this is going to sound offensive, but Canada flavored. I mean, you referred to Canadiana, but there are shows that are just great shows. Yeah. And there, I mean, uh, one of our best ever uh, was called Da Vinci's Inquest. And I think that made it south of the border at some point. Uh, it had a less successful, very short-lived spinoff called Da Vinci's City Hall. But Da Vinci's Inquest, although very clearly set in Vancouver, um, mm-hmm. was not Canadiana. It was just a really good show made in Canada. Uh, Motive was a co-pro yeah. with, I think, ABC. A really good show made in Canada, primarily Canadian cast, yeah. Canadian crew, a few big American guest Motive stars, a couple amazing. of American regulars, but overall a Canadian show. Uh, Fringe Flashpoint. was quite Canadian. Which one? Flashpoint. Oh, Flashpoint. Yeah, Flashpoint yes, was very good. Flashpoint when I can. Rookie Blue is ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some really re- Saving Hope is ours. Like there's some really, really good Canadian TV out there, and uh, yeah. I don't think that our reputation for for bad or poorly produced grainy television is true anymore. Although uh, (laughs) certainly there was a time (laughs) and that time was when we were making the littlest hobo. Yes. 
But there was your answer. Did we just accidentally do a crush segment on Canadian TV? I think we did. (laughs) Possibly. Um, But yeah, my my answer between those two shows is I would say spend your time with kids in the hall. Um, But while you're at it, oh, also watch some SCTV because that's you get to watch the great Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara and uh, the late John Candy, rest in peace, and a bunch of other amazing, amazing people. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. So if you're watching TV, you got tons of stuff to do. And uh, if you're out ordering breakfast, get a pancake for the table. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for episode two of the Talent Crush Chat Show. Uh, thank you for sticking around to the very end to hear all the plugs and credits. Um, we want to thank again, Terry Lynn Brown for talking to us you can find her at terry lynn brown on twitter on instagram at terry brown music and please do go ahead and look up her spotify uh, where she's posting some of her great music there uh stevie what plugs do you have for us uh you can find me on instagram and twitter at stevie kj s-t-e-v-i-e-k-a-y-j-a-y uh whoever has my name i could not get it so i had to spell out my initials (laughs) Uh, and please keep an eye open for the soon-to-come web series, Honestly, Charlotte. Chris, where can people find you online? Well, all of my writing is uh, accessible through my website, ChristopherRoyce.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and all sorts of other fun places. Uh, and you can find all those links through my website. I'm not going to spell them out because I don't want to. <laughs> That's all there is to it. <laughs> Ironically, in an attempt to make the outro shorter, which has now come and gone. Oh, well, that's okay. I forgot my website, uh, steviejackson.ca. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you again next month. Bye. The Talent Crush Chat Show podcast is written, edited, and produced by Christopher Royce and Stevie Jackson. Show notes, social media links, and more can be found at talentcrushchatshow.tumblr.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and it'll help more people discover the show. If you want us to give you some unreliable advice, send us an email at talentcrushchatshow at gmail.com.